good afternoon. Bienvenidos a la Biblioteca de Pratt. Hi, my name is Sonia Alcantara Antoine, and I'm the special assistant to the director here at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. It is my very special pleasure to welcome Juno Diaz to Baltimore and to Pratt Library. Like me, Juno hails from the island of Quisqueya, the Dominican Republic. In his first collection of short stories, Drown, and in his latest masterpiece, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, Juno writes of Quisqueyan rituals, idioms, quirks, rites of passages, and superstitions, all with warmth, humor, and unflinching realism. With both casual ease and stylish mastery, Juno mixes references of pop culture and history Americana and Dominican-isms, all while tackling the issues of identity, freedom, and assimilation. In his writing, Juno deftly captures the duality of the immigrant experience of people who live lives with feet firmly planted in two worlds. He talks about the otherness of being a Dominican immigrant in New Jersey, and sometimes of being the American kid of Dominican parents going back to DR, of families estranged and united, of families who dream of hope and hope for a different life. He speaks of the inescapable shadow the United States casts over the Dominican Republic and of the fierce passion Dominicanos feel for their island home even though they now make their lives here. And he does so brilliantly and unapologetically in unitalicized Spanglish, thus creating a narrative that is uniquely American and undeniably human. Gino Diaz is a professor of creating writing at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His fiction has appeared in the New Yorker, the Paris Review, and the Best American Short Stories. His debut short story collection, Drown, was met with unprecedented critical acclaim. His first novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, was published 11 years after Drown and was received by rapturous reviews, including the New York Times, which praised Diaz as one of contemporary fiction's most distinctive and irresistible new voices. He's a recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship, and most recently, the Rome Fellowship from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He has won numerous awards, including the National Book Critics Circle Award for Best Novel in 2007, and the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2008. It is my pleasure to introduce to you an original literary voice for a new generation and to a man who, as a young boy, discovered his passion for literature at his local public library, <laughs> Juno Diaz. nice to see you all here, though I, I lament the sacrifice that was made. Yeah? <laughs> we have not had a day like this up north uh, since last summer, so uh, I appreciate all of you coming. Um, I wanted to thank the library, of course, for having me. 
it's not every institution um, that goes out of their way uh, to bring uh, literature and writers and the arts uh, so dramatically to its community. It's something that should be really commended. Um, I want to thank the City Let Festival for having me. Yeah, I, I don't speak, I, I have to learn to speak more in that politician shit where you signal the applause. You know? <laughs> it's like you, you end on the up note and, and everybody knows to give you the bullshit clap. But I, I'm gonna learn it. Yeah, I mumble too much. Um, uh, I wanted to thank uh, Sonia, Sonia Canta um, for that wonderful introduction. You know, it's funny because uh, I just gotta come up here and read some shit I wrote years ago, right? Like, she actually had to put that introduction together. So in some ways, she did far more work than my ass did. Uh, and uh, so I appreciate it, Sonia. Um, yeah. And of course, uh, I know for a fact there's some of you beyond just the, fa just the nice weather who made sacrifices to be here, whether it was a babysitter or locking the poor dog up. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah? Okay. So yeah, I, I know Baltimore pretty okay. I used to come here a lot when I was in college. This was in like the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, we used to come here four or five times a year, which was a weird place for a Jersey kid, but we really, we had friends in town. Yeah? So it has been a while. How is Baltimore? Is it all right? Uh-oh, the clapping. I should be like, how is Baltimore? Tell me about it, yeah? Yeah? So, you know, the, uh, I, before I came, I was, like, getting my, my stuff packed. And, of course, uh, uh, my friends were like, oh, you're going to Baltimore. They all wanted me to watch episodes of The Wire. <laughs> no, they're like, and I'm not kidding. They were really excited. They thought this would somehow explain everything to me. Yeah, which, I don't know, you, the, those of you who are natives must decide, but I, I, I thought I could do without it right now. I heard, even though it's like, I don't think there's any show on television that has employed so many talented black actors, you know? I was like, God damn, and then, all right, you, you guys are to stop the clapping. <laughs> I realize that nothing makes me more nervous, if you're from Santo Domingo, of course, uh, an island like mine, I always say this, but it's no joke. It's always like the the lunatic, homicidal, maniac politicians. Anytime people are clapping, it's always like, kill all Haitians, and everybody claps. So there's some horrific thing. So in my mind, in my mind, the normative, the normative social space has been strangely distorted in my bizarre memory. Yeah. So guys, I'm just going to read something brief. Um, uh, I'm going to read half of a story. We'll jump around, yeah? And, um, and then we'll take a few questions and answers. Is that the technique or no? Cool. I mean, I'm making sure. If it's not, you know, you could tell me. For real. Um, how many writers are here? Oh, come on, you guys. <laughs> It's a whole fucking grip of you guys. 
y'all know better than this. You, you guys should be home working, man. I'm like, I'm the last person you need to see if you're a writer, you know? For real. See me, let me see some of those hands again. There'll be less here. And in the front row. Mm. Okay, I'm, I am, uh, I am impressed. Thank you. So this is a story, uh, guys, I never read any new shit because I don't write fast enough, you know? So this is something I think I wrote like, oh, six, seven years ago. And I'm just going to read the first half uh, with some gaps and um, you'll begin, you'll follow, okay? I've been writing this series of stories, um, series of stories about infidelity, yeah? Again, it's it's just more of a trick to organize the stories than anything. It's, uh, it's It comes after what my sister told me that I always repeat constantly. She's like, no matter what you're writing about, as long as you throw infidelity in it, motherfuckers will read it, you know? So, all sorts of weird shit that I'm interested in that no one else is interested in, but if I put some cheating fools in, it's suddenly like, oh, it's accessible. Fine, fine. So, this is a story, uh, the first half. It's just called The Sun, the Moon, the Stars. Um, I, I thought I, I, I was writing about dentistry in this, but uh, I'm not kidding. I, I've spent like four years working on the story, and it was all about dentistry. And uh, I quickly had to get rid of all of it. Cause, because, you know, I don't know anything about dentistry. So... <laughs> I don't know why, but it wasn't working. Yeah. So here we go. The sun, the moon, the stars. Yeah? Okay. Thank you. I am not a bad guy. I know how that sounds. Defensive and unscrupulous, but it is true. I am like everybody else. Weak, full of mistakes, but basically good. Magdalena disagrees, though. She considers me a typical Dominican man, a sucio, an asshole. Because you see, many months ago, when I didn't have to be careful about almost anything, I cheated on Magda with this chick who had tons of 80s freestyle hair. I did not tell Magda about it either. You know how that shit is. A smelly bone like that, better off buried in the backyard of your life. Magda only found out because homegirl wrote her a fucking letter. And that letter had details. Shit you wouldn't even tell your boys drunk. The thing is, the thing is, is that particular bit of stupidity had been over for months. Me and Magda were on an upswing by then. We weren't as distant as we'd been the winter when I was cheating. The freeze was over. She was coming over to my place, and instead of us hanging with my knucklehead boys, we were seeing movies, driving out different places to eat, even caught a play at the Crossroad Theaters, and I took her picture with some big-wig black playwrights, pictures where she is smiling so much that you would think her wide-ass mouth was going to unhinge. We were a couple again visiting each other's families on weekends, eating breakfast at diners, rummaging through the New Brunswick Library together. A nice rhythm we had going. But then 
the letter hits like a Star Trek grenade and detonates everything past, present, and future. And suddenly, her folks want to kill me. It does not matter that I help them with their taxes two years in a row or that I mow their lawn. Her father, who used to treat me like his evil, calls me an asshole on the phone and sounds like he's strangling himself with the cord. You no deserve I speak to you in Spanish, he says. And I see one of Magda's girlfriends at the Woodbridge Mall, Clarabelle, the Ecuadoriana with the biology degree and the chinita eyes, and she treats me like I ate someone's favorite fucking kid. You, you don't even want to hear how it went down with Magda, like a five-train collision. She threw Cassandra's letter at me, and then she sat down on the curb, and started hyperventilating. Oh, God, she wailed. Oh, my God. This is when my boys claim they would have pulled a total fucking denial. Cassandra who? But I was too sick to my stomach to even try that. I sat down next to her, grabbed her flailing arms, and said some dumb shit like, You have to listen to me, Magda, or you won't understand. Okay. Yeah, so let's jump from there. All right? Uh, we get it. Now, uh, again, I ask this question every time. One, because repetition helps you with the fucking terror. Yeah, you should be up here. Yeah, uh, and also because it's, it's it's useful information. Like, how many of you have have dated someone who they should have been beaten up instead of dating? Yeah. <laughs> but then instead of beating their ass up, you decide to take a trip to another country with them. Anybody done that? <laughs> no. Oh, the young man in the front row. <laughs> Sir, you've got the double hit, writer. Yeah, if you haven't done shit like this uh, and you're a young person, because I see the youth back there, you will do something that's stupid. I promise you. Yeah. How, are you guys in high school back there? Or are you guys in college? I can't even see y'all. What grade? Uh, who, who? Did your teacher? Did your teacher bring you? Where is she or he? Oh, you guys got a nice fucking teacher, man. You guys have a nice teacher. You know if you guys were teachers and most of you would bring your kids anywhere. So, well done, well done. So, they have a trip together, this couple, planned before he was caught cheating. They were supposed to go to Santo Domingo, yeah? And uh, things are in the air. And this is where we join them. I do not know why I get stuck on the trip the way I do. Bringing it up every day trying to get Magda to commit. Maybe I was getting tired of the fighting, or maybe I had gotten this idea in my head that if Magda said, yes, we are going, then shit in the end would be fine between us. And if Magda said, no, it is not for me, then at least I'd know that it was 
over her girlfriends, the sorest losers on the planet, told her, advised her to let me pay for the trip and then never to speak to me again. She, of course, told me this shit because she couldn't stop herself from telling me everything she was thinking. I asked her, how do you feel about that suggestion? And she said, it is an idea. <laughs> Even my boys were like, nigga, it sounds like you are wasting your money on a whole lot of bullshit. But I really thought that this would be good for us. Deep down where my boys don't know me, I am an optimist, and I thought, me and Magda in Santo Domingo, what could this not cure? <laughs> Let me confess, I love Santo Domingo. I love coming home to the guys in the blazers trying to push little cups of Brugal into my hand. I love the plane landing everybody clapping when the wheels kiss the runway. I love the fact that I'm the only nigga on board without a Cuban link or a flapjack of makeup on my face. I love the redhead woman on the way to see the daughter that she has not met in 11 years. The gifts she holds on their lap like the bones of a saint. Mi hija has tetas now, the woman whispers. The last time I saw her, she could barely speak in sentences, and now she is a woman. Imaginate. I love the bags that my mother packs, shit for all our relatives, and something for Magda, a gift. You give this to her, my mother says, no matter what happens. If this were another kind of story, I would tell you about the sea what it looks like after it's been forced into the sky through a blowhole. How when I'm driving in from the airport and see it like this, like shredded silver, I know that I am back for real. And I would tell you about how many poor motherfuckers there are. More albinos, more cross-eyed niggers, more tigres, more beggars than you will ever see. And I would tell you about the traffic, the entire history of late 20th century automobiles, a cosmology of battered cars, battered motorcycles, battered trucks, and battered buses, and an equal number of repair shops run by any fool with a wrench. And I would tell you about our shanties, and our no running water faucets, and the sambos on our billboards, and the fact that my family house comes equipped with the ever reliable latrine, and I would tell you about my abuelo and his campo hands, and how unhappy he is that I'm not sticking around for longer, and I would tell you about the street where I was born, Calle 21, how it hasn't decided yet if it wants to be a slum or not, and how it's been in this state of indecision for years, but this would make, but that would make this another kind of story and I am having enough trouble with this one as it is. You are going to have to take my word for it. Santo Domingo is Santo Domingo, so let's all pretend we know what goes on there. So one more jump, yeah. Uh, so you could tell he like smooth talks the chick to come, his girl to come to this uh, trip. 
even though my man got bopped crazy rude, right? And so her idea of going to Santo Domingo was she just wanted to go to a resort. Yeah, a place like Valle Ibe or uh, Capcana and just like, just stay. He wanted to rent a car and drive around the whole island seeing all the little cute shit. All right? So we know who wins, and this is where we join our couple. Yeah? <laughs> by, by the middle of day three of our all Kiskeya redemption tour, we are in an air-conditioned bungalow watching HBO. Exactly where I want to be when I'm on the fucking island in a resort. Magda is reading a book by a trappist, in a better mood, I guess, and I am sitting on the edge of the bed, fingering my useless map, and I am thinking, for this, I deserve something nice, something physical, yeah? Me and Magda were usually pretty damn casual about the sex, but ever since the breakup, shit had gotten weird. First of all, it wasn't regular like before, and I'm lucky to score some once a week, and I gotta nudge her to start things up or we won't fuck at all. And Magda plays like she doesn't want it, and sometimes she doesn't, and then I gotta cool it. But other times, she does want it, and I have to touch her pussy, which is my way of initiating things, of saying, so... How about we kick it, mommy? And she'll, and she'll turn her head, which is her way of saying, I am too proud to acquiesce openly to your animal desires, but if you continue to put your finger in me, I will not stop you. Today, today we started no problem, but then halfway through, Magda said, wait, we shouldn't. And I wanted to know why. She closed her eyes like she was embarrassed at herself. Forget about it, she said, moving her hips under me. Just forget about it. I don't even want to tell you where we are at. We're in Casa de Campo, the resort that shame forgot. The average asshole would love this place. It is the largest, wealthiest resort on the island, which means it is a goddamn fortress walled away from everyone else with security and peacocks and ambitious topiaries everywhere. It advertises itself in the states of its own country, and it might as well be. It has 36 holes of golf, its own airport, beaches so white they ache to be trampled, and the only island Dominicans that you are guaranteed to see are either caked up with money or changing your sheets. Let's just say that my abuelo has never been here, and neither has yours. This is where the Garcias and the Colons come to relax after a long month of oppressing the masses. You, you chill here too long and you will have your ghetto past revoked, no questions asked. We wake up bright and early for the buffet, 
Magda is scratching out a couple of cards to her family, and I want to talk about the day before. But when I bring it up, she puts down her pen and jams on her shades. I feel like you're pressuring me, she says, and I say, how am I pressuring you? I just want some space to myself every now and then. Every time I'm with you, I feel like you want something from me. And I say, time to yourself. What does that mean? Like, maybe once a day, you do one thing and I do another. Like when, I say. Like now? It does not have to be now. She looks exasperated. Why don't we just go down to the beach? I feel like you rejected my whole country, Magda. Don't be ridiculous. She drops one hand into my lap. I just wanted to relax. What is wrong with that? So, the sun is blazing and the blue of the ocean is an overload on the brain. Casa de Campo has got beaches the way the rest of the island has got problems. These, though, have no merengue, no little kids, nobody trying to sell you chicharrones, and there is a massive melanin deficit in evidence. Every, every 50 feet, there's at least one euro fuck beached out on a towel like some scary pale monster that the sea has vomited up. They, they look... They look like philosophy professors, like budget Foucaults, and too many of them are in the company of underage Dominican girls. I mean it. These girls can be no older than 14, and you can tell by their inability to communicate that these couples did not meet back in their left bank days. Magda is rocking a dope bikini that her girlfriends helped her pick out so that she could torture me and I am in these old ruined trunks that say Sandy Hook forever. <laughs> I, I will admit it with, I will admit it with Magda half naked and in public, I am feeling vulnerable and uneasy. I put my hand on her knee and say, I wish you'd say you love me. Junior, please, can you say you like me a lot? Can you leave me alone? You are such a pestilence. So defeated, I let the sun stake me out to the sand. It is disheartening, me and Magda together. We don't look like a couple. When she smiles, everybody asks for her hand in marriage. And when I smile, motherfuckers start looking for their wallets. <laughs> Magda has been a star the whole time that we've been on the island. You know how that shit is. When you're back home and your girl is an octoroon, the brothers go ape shit. On the buses, the machos were like, Tu si eres bella, muchacha. And every time I dip into the water for a swim, some Mediterranean messenger of love starts rapping to her. There's even this one squid who's mad, persistent, who sits down near us so he can impress Magda with the hair around his nipples. 
And instead of ignoring the guy, Magda starts a conversation with him, and yeah, yeah, it's, he turns out he's Dominican too, an assistant DA who says he loves his people. Better I am their prosecutor, he claims. At least I understand them. After about three minutes of this, I can't take it anymore, and I say, Magda, stop talking to that asshole. The assistant DA startles. I know you ain't talking to me, he says. Actually, I say, I am. This, Magda says, is unbelievable. She gets stiff-legged to her feet and walks towards the water. She's got a half moon of sand stuck to her butt. A total fucking heartbreak. Homeboy is saying something else to me, but I am not listening. I already know what Magda will say when she sits back down. Time for you to do one thing and me to do another. Thank you. interpreter here, please. I don't, I barely make sense to myself. I don't know how you're following this, you know. I mean it most sincerely. So we have time for some questions, yeah. I figure I take the first 10 minutes talking bullshit, then like 17 minutes reading, which is as much as any human being can bear, and then we'll take some questions, yeah. Hopefully the young folks in the back will stir themselves and ask something, but there's no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Madame. Um, I'm wondering how much of your work is autobiographical, and I know authors get asked that all the time, but... You know, could you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yes. No, I, I, it's like the, I, I, you know, you get together with authors every now and then, and they all talk about how that's the question they hate the most. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's like the wildest thing. They, as if our lives weren't blessed enough as it is, that we've got, we've got to moan about something, you know? Um, in my case, guys, it's really interesting. Uh, my first book was very autobiographical. I wrote a book called Drowned that I basically just took my family, put them through one of those like, those things that make hamburger meat, made some fucking patties out of them, and sold it as a book, you know? This book uh, is completely invented, the second one, uh, the novel Oscar Wilde. Um, it's got absolutely nothing in it. But you know, it's an interesting question because someone like me, uh, I'm sure like many of you, do you guys even recognize yourself 20 years later? Like, who I was in my 20s, I can't even imagine having to be that person or even who that person was. When I was 20, I went to the gym three and a half hours a day, six days a week. I, like, 
was on steroids, was like, for real, I was like enormous. I didn't even speak with any rational, you know, I, I 90% of my personality was suppressed in an attempt to pass for the masculinity of the neighborhood that I grew up in, you know, and so it's always a wonder because I think, yeah, some of it is certainly autobiographical even in this book, but it's so hard to keep the selves one is straight. yeah straight uh, yeah clear is probably the better word yeah yeah okay uh, another question sir were you one of our writer friends yes come <laughs> uh, in Oscar Wilde uh, you make several references to uh, sci-fi fantasy things, obviously as part of who Oscar was as a character. Um, I was wondering, were you deliberately trying to confuse readers who maybe didn't have uh, that ref those reference points? Yeah. No, it's a good question. Um, the interlocutor was being very modest when he said a few references. Uh, at, last count, at last count, there's about 400 science fiction references. Um, most of them are not yeah, most of them are buried, so unless you know, you know, you don't know. Um, and none of this stuff was there to confuse anyone. Um, none of this stuff was there to alienate anyone. Same with the Spanish. The Spanish isn't in this book because the author, myself, is attempting to say, see, you know, see, enjoy your, enjoy not understanding a language. Or... or you know, feel immigration suckers. You know, it was. It wasn't. You got to remember that in a novel, a novel while it may while the novel is read by the individual, to understand it, one can only begin to approach understanding a novel through a collective. When there is things in a novel that you do not understand. It is not there to flummox you. It is there to invite you to reach out to someone else who might know. The fact is that there's no possible way any one human being can understand a novel. The nature of the novel is that the form is too complicated for this thing called understanding. And when there's stuff in this book that you don't understand, it's not there to piss you off. It is there to invite you to reach out to other people. What makes a novel, in some respects, interesting to me is that the novel has always been historically an invitation to community, despite the fact that it is an individual who engages it. And I just thought that there was something very interesting about um, the idea that my mother, who will get all the Dominican crap, is going to have to speak to some like fanboy on the bus to ask her, <laughs> what the fuck is Frank Herbert, you know? <laughs> And the same thing, it's like, there's all these communities that normally, normally wouldn't have to speak to each other, but if they wish to access this book, have to begin a conversation. Mm. Thank you. Uh, I guess this is a good follow-up question to your elegant uh, answer. I was struck by the faceless man that was mentioned three, I think, three times, and there's a part of me saying, "Oh, should I really ask this question? Maybe I should wait for my book club to, to, 
to answer it, but I'll ask you instead. Could you say a little bit about the faceless man? Uh, you are cheating, aren't you? I am. You're, you're, you're going to get the early dope, and then I'm going to I'm going to impress the next Thursday. Okay, no, no. You look. I, I'll be honest with you guys. Listen about those of you. Yeah, who's written a novel? Raise your hand. Come on. Oh, suddenly, wait, somebody was kind of half-doubting it. <laughs> Come on, you know the deal. Yeah, it's like when you wrote a novel, you know you did, because you felt like you got hit by an oar, yeah? So, listen, those of you who've worked on the, the novel form, you understand something, which is important to that question, which is 90% of what is being done in the novel is being done at an unconscious level. You can pretend all day long that you really understand this thing that you are working on and that your incredible intelligence and your training and the thousands of books that you read and your meticulous good taste is what is in fact organizing this. But this is not true. The novel, for the most part, is this in it's an incredible stroke of fortune when you think about it. Because all that intelligence and all that training and all those books you read and all that desire is just there to try to interpret uh, a storm of ideas and images and words that are coming out of your unconscious. And a lot of times you put shit in the novel not because you have any particular conscious design but because your unconscious tells you, do it. Your unconscious understands the organization of your novel better than you do. There is no human way for a normal person to hold 400 pages simultaneously in their mind at once. Nor is it possible for you to understand why you're attempting to hold these pages, these characters, these words, these sentences. Nor is it possible for you to maintain the symmetries that make novels so pleasing to read. Yeah? And so what ends up happening is that you will literally put things in there and you don't know why you're putting them in. And you try to take them out, and when you take them out, the book sucks even worse than it did beforehand. <laughs> yeah? And the faceless man was part of that. There was something I knew that I had to do with this faceless man, and if I left them out, the book died. Because there was plenty of people who were saying, who were reading, and they were saying, I don't get this, this has no point, I don't understand it, cut it the hell out. And every time I did, the book was DOA. You know? And this is what happens. A lot, lot of what goes into these elaborate pieces of art comes from a place we have no access to. And yet, there is a part of us, as we read a novel, that responds to these mysteries and that sees symmetries in them, and sees beauty in them, and draws energy and emotion. But again, the best explanation I have, if you want a more concrete one, is, as one of my students put it out, um, that it's interesting when the man without a face appears um, in the story, yeah, and that one might think that one of the things that happened with Oscar was that what happened with Oscar is that he, in many ways, sacrificed himself to turn himself into something that exists without, outside of time, which is, of course, a story. As you know, narratives have a way of 
not following uh, a linear narrative. And one of my students argued, is it a possibility that the man without a face is not in fact a fragment of Oscar going back and forth through time to try to warn his family and to try to provoke them into certain kinds of action? Who knows? Hi, I'm a young Dominican writer, and I was wondering um, how do you feel about directly connecting to Dominicans or reaching out to Dominicans through your writing? Because I know the book was translated into Spanish as well. You mean Dominicans in Santo Domingo? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful question. Thank you. Um, how old are you? Seventeen. Yeah, you guys look so young. Yeah. <laughs> God bless you, yo. Um, no, I mean, God, you think, you think I'm young. That was 23 years ago for me. So, um, no, that's a wonderful question. Look, again, part of what happened with me, part of what happens with immigration, at least the way I immigrated, every immigrant experience is utterly unique, is that I write, and I always feel like I'm writing simultaneously for New Jersey, and for Villa Juana, the part of Santo Domingo that I left behind. There's stuff in this book that unless you're Dominican, you're never going to get. I mean, at all. I mean, there's just kind of crazy little jokes. And the same thing, there's stuff there that only New Jersey natives are going to get. You know, for real. If you're not from Jersey, there's a bunch of stuff in here that make no sense to anybody. You know, and I think that always as writers, in the long, the long, gloomy, journey to finishing a book, you've got to keep yourself entertained. And one of the things you do is you try to send little secret messages to your 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 folks. You know? It's like kinda of like leaving little writings on the desk for the person who's gonna sit down at the desk after you leave the class. You know, so for me, again, if people in New if there was not a sector of people in New Jersey and in Santo Domingo if there wasn't a small sector who didn't respond to my work, I would feel that my work had failed. So it's it's absolutely essential for me. It's absolutely essential. You know? Thank you. Thank you. I think we have room for just two more, yeah? And briefest, Maximus. Were we supposed to end at four? What time are we supposed to end, gang? Yeah, four. Yeah, so we'll just take one more. Yeah. All the way in the middle? Madame. Yes. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, part of what comes into making a character is, again, if you if you mess around with people in other mediums, you get to learn really interesting stuff, right? Like, I don't know if anybody has guys or friends or pals who work on cameras. It's really interesting, like the eye, you know, the human eye. Some colors decay faster in the eye than others. Yeah, in other words, some colors linger in the eye longer. That's just the way the eye works. And folks who work with camera begin to understand sort of the, the ramifications of that, how that works for their, for their form. Again, most of us who write don't always understand how characters work. We do it, but we don't really meticulously study like 
how does a character enter into a reader? How does a reader connect with a character? Um, for me, I've made, especially for this novel, I realized that the kind of connections that I wanted my readers to have with these characters wouldn't, have, wouldn't be sufficient unless I made a rigorous study of the form. Um, that was my own vainglorious idiocy. And so first things first I did was figure out how do characters actually work? Like how do people really internalize characterization? There's, there is a structure. The second thing is more directly to your question, which is that when you write, it's like being an athlete in very small ways. When you ever hang out with an athlete or you know an athlete, you hear an athlete being interviewed, they talk about, oh, um, I knew I was going to get that shit because I was in the zone. Yeah. Well, one of the things about teaching at MIT is that you have brain cog people around, brain cognitive science people around, and they will tell you the zone is not a myth. That it is possible for the human mind to enter what would be called a higher order space where it works incredibly efficiently and begins to create, run models in it that are capable of enormous almost prediction patterns, which is why baseball players begin to swing sometime before the ball is out of the hand of the goddamn pitcher. Yeah, they see the hand, they see the wind-up, they see the arm, and they begin a prediction pattern. So this higher order space is called the zone. Yeah, your brain starts to, all the gears start working at once. With these characters, um, with writing, it happens as well. Every now and then, a writer enters into this higher order space that allows them to see more deeply into their book than they normally can. Yeah, this is called the zone. A writer is lucky if it happens once a book. Usually, guys, all you need is one day of this zone mind to make the book hang together. And my characters, especially Belicia, I had to work on Belicia so long because I knew that her character would never come off until I forced myself into that higher order space. So I basically sat around, guys, writing and writing and writing, waiting for lightning to hit. Because there's no way you can call it, there's no way that you can, like, you know, schedule it in. You've just got to be there so when the lightning hits, you know, you're holding up the rod. And uh, part of what took this book so long was the years of waiting to get into that headspace. And for me, that doesn't mean everybody connects with it at all. It just means that this gives you the possibility that some readers will feel incredibly deeply about these characters because in some ways you've entered not only into the emotional space within you, but the emotional space that words can possibly hold that you yourself really can't see with your normal brain because words we use every day and so therefore are transparent commonplaces. And, you know, some characters were quick, but Belicia, I waited three years before something happened. You know? And I could have knocked it out. I mean, guys, I'm not a fucking bad writer. I could have knocked it out. <laughs> no, I mean it. No. I, I, I could have written this damn thing, you know? No sweat. But I feel that it would have lacked this, this hidden thing that you can't put your finger on it that only comes from the zone, the way a dude can hit, yeah, the way someone can hit 
a home run with bases loaded on the last possible pitch of an inning and win the World Series. Those things are possible and have happened because people get into that headspace. And writers are capable of achieving lots of emotional connection based on this as well. So guys, thank you so much. Have a good day. book signing uh, down on the second floor in a few minutes.